much, of course. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I chose. So, the series we're doing is called Engage the Bible. And that scripture, thank you for the scripture reading that we had, was it kind of feels a bit scary to engage the Bible because the Bible is sharper than a double edged sword and it divides between soul and spirit. And you're thinking, gosh, I think I even need grace to read the Bible. Um, and when we look at it sometimes, we open it up, and what's in there? Well, actually, there's, when you read through the prophets, there's a lot about judgment. There's a lot about warnings. Even Jesus has a whole, ch- almost a whole chapter on woes. He gives seven woes to the Pharisees. Um, and so sometimes I find when I open it up, I'm like, whoa, this is tough. Um, and, you know, then there's that scripture, and it says, uh, a man who looks in the mirror and then just walks away. I'm quoting it slightly mi- wrong. You know, you know the one I'm talking about, though. It's saying that um, when you look at the Bible, you do what it says. If, uh, and, and that's an instruction. So it seems like pretty hard anyway. We're going to read the Bible. We're going to engage the Bible. But it's going to be sharper than a double-edged sword. And it's going to cut between soul and spirit. So it sounds quite harsh. And so that's why I thought the bit after, so it's Hebrews 12 and 13, the bit after says, therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So I I think a revelation of the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross is really important before we go and engage the Bible. Because um, you could come out of engaging the Bible uh, with judgment on yourself. And and, um, God does want to strip us of the things that are hindering us and the sin that's hindering us. But if we don't have a revelation of the cross and the goodness of God, then we're not going to come out um, in the right way. So this is really good what Joel was talking about in the communion. That was really appropriate as well. so how do I do slides? Do I just say, like, next slide? Yeah, next slide. Okay, <laughs> cool. Well, I'm used to having a clicker. Um, so why pray the scriptures? So, this is, so we've done three topics. Uh, the first in this series was reading the Bible together, and the second was meditation, meditating on the Word, and this third one is praying the scriptures. So I thought I'd first ask the question, why should we pray the scriptures? Oh, I can click. I, okay, cool. Thanks. <laughs> Oh, wow, that's amazing. So what, why, why pray the scriptures? Thank you. Why should we pray the scriptures? And I've got three reasons for you. Um, one was Jesus prayed the scriptures. So while Jesus was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he also said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And he was directly quoting from the Psalms. Um, and Jesus, I mean, Jesus just fulfilled the word in so many ways. He walked around, he quoted scriptures, he explained scriptures, and most importantly, Jesus fulfilled scriptures. Uh, there's a lot of times when it says, he, you remember that bit in Luke 4, and he gets up and he reads Isaiah 61, and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, so Jesus understood the scriptures spoke of him, and he held the scriptures in high regard. He held them in the view that they were actually spoken by God, and it was actually God's word. Um, Number two, the disciples prayed the scriptures. Now, you might remember this from Acts 4. The result of the disciples praying the scriptures was this. It says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Who would like that kind of result of, in prayer when you pray? The building shakes, and you get filled with boldness, and then you preach. I, I want that. I really want that. And the prayer is amazing, because it's basically just after Peter 
and um, who was he with? John. So Peter and John, uh, they've just healed a lame beggar in Acts 3, and, and then they're starting preaching. And as they're preaching, the Sanhedrin and the leaders, um, the Pharisees come and they reprimand them and they say, look, don't, you're not allowed to speak in the name of Jesus. And there's that really famous verse says, well, you, I know you're telling me that, but you judge whether yourself, it's better for me to listen to you or to listen to God. Um, and so after that, they go back to their believers, the, the other believers, and they say, look, this is what's happened. And so what they say is, God, look at their threats, look at their threats. And they quote Psalm 2 verses 1 to 2 in that prayer. And as a result of that prayer, because in that prayer, they also ask for boldness, and they get boldness, and they also get the room shaking, which is pretty amazing. So the disciples prayed the scriptures, and, oh, and number three, a put higher rate of answered prayer. And this is the scripture I've done to back, back up that, oh, I've, I'm putting to back up that point. Okay, so it's 1 John 5, 14 and 15. It says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. I think there's two requirements there to get answered prayer. One of them is praying according to God's will. And the other one I think I can see there is faith. We know that he hears us. Um, but I want to concentrate on the first one, praying according to his will. And so, as a, as a young believer, this passage really encouraged me because I wanted to have answered prayer. Amen. I wanted my prayers to be answered. And I thought, okay, well, I need to pray God's will. Okay, well, what is God's will? And so we find God's will is most expressly told to us in the Bible. So when we pray the scriptures, surely we're going to have a higher rate of answered prayer. Um, and I, I think when we're praying the Bible, we also have to have faith. That was the other thing, right? This scripture, we have to believe. And so, and so we have to believe that the Bible is the word of God. Um, and my story with this was, I, I, as a new believer, I became a Christian at 18 years old. And I experienced the presence of God and I knew he was real and I had to follow him and I laid down my life for him. But I never read the Bible and I wasn't really into reading. And I kind of heard about the Bible. Actually, I became a Christian while I was in Fiji. I was, I was a traveling 18-year-old. And I traveled, and I was, then I came to Australia. You probably tell from my accent. I'm not from here. I'm from the UK. But, um, and I, I've lived here with my wife and kids for five years. But, and I'm 36. So 18 years ago, ago, so this was half of my life ago, I was traveling from the UK. I was in Fiji. I got saved there. Uh, I traveled to Australia. And I met my uncle in Victoria. And um, he was a pastor, and he gave me a Bible. And I was traveling, and I went on one of those backpacker buses. Do you know what I mean by that? It's backpacker buses? Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I probably stood out quite a lot on those backpacker buses because I had this Bible. It was just a New Testament, and I was reading it. Um, I was actually finding it quite hard. Uh, it was a lot of new language, and it was kind of interesting, but I wasn't really getting into the flow of it. And I didn't like reading much. And so uh, a few months later, I was living in New Zealand at the time. I was going skiing there. Um, I was doing a ski season. And uh, wh while I was there, I, I said to the Lord, look, you know, I, I've been told this is an important book. Uh, so, but I really don't like reading. And when I've read it, I find it kind of old and boring. So I, I'll, do a, I'll do an agreement with you. I'll, I'll strike a deal with you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read it every day. 
Uh, but I'm only going to read like one or two sentences because that's just as much as I can do because I'm not really a reader. Um, but yeah, I, so I, I want, I don't know what I was asking in return. Maybe it was like, I want you to speak to me through it. I guess that was what my heart was saying. But that's exactly what happened. Um, this is not how I engage the Bible now. But then as a new believer, God's grace was really poured out on me. And I found for three months in a row, I would just open the Bible randomly to a random page. I'm not recommending you do this. Um, God can use it, and he used it for me. But this is what happened for me. Uh, I would just open it, and I would just read one or two sentences, and it would just jump out. And you've probably had that experience before, right, when the word is really speaking to you. Have you had that? Um, and I really want that for us. And so at the end, we're going to pray. We're going to pray that we have a season of being in the word, and it's jumping out to us. Anyway, for this three months in a row, as a new believer, 18-year-old young man, didn't like reading, I would just read two sentences, and it would just jump out every time, and it would usually be an answer to a question I had on my heart during the day, or a, quest a question I was praying about during the day, and suddenly it would come out. And so I, after that happened, after a week, I was thinking, this is pretty amazing, God. And then two weeks, I was thinking, this is incredible, three weeks, four weeks, and suddenly I understood that this isn't just a coincidence. Actually, God is real, and he's speaking to me. Um, and so I was convinced that this book is not just a natural book. I didn't like reading. I didn't know a lot of the facts about the Bible. I didn't know its authority. I didn't know its historical accuracy. But I knew that it was not a normal book. It wasn't a natural book. Um, and that was really helpful for me. And so uh, I came back from my travels, and I went to university in England. I went to university in a city called Leeds. And there I was part of a church. Um, I just joined, joined a church down the road. And we had a lot of visiting speakers. Some of them were incredibly prophetically gifted. Some of them had seen amazing healing miracles. And some of them had this amazing pastoral heart. And they just emanated love. And people would come up to that, them afterwards and tell them their whole life story. And they'd pray for them. And they'd be crying. And you think, and so I'd see all these. And some of them would have an amazing zeal for an evangelism. And as a young man and a young believer, um, in my maybe 19, 20 years old, I'd only been a believer one or two years, I was really impressed by these visiting preachers. But one thing I noticed, every, one thing that was in common with what they said, although they had a very different gifting in God, one thing that was in common with what they said and told us, they all encouraged us, read the word. It's God's word. It's true. And I encourage you, if you're going to have any level of success in this Christian life, if you're going to even survive as a believer, you have to get into this word. And they all said that. Um, and of course, I already knew that actually this is pretty important because I had had that experience. And so that was interesting for them to, to say that to me. Um, and so about the same time, I was, so I'm just spending a bit of time on the word and why the word is the word of God. And I know we probably believe that already, but um, I feel like if we're going to engage the Bible and if we're going to increase our engagement with the Bible, we have to know that this is a gift from God. It's not just a normal book. It's not a natural book. It's a supernatural book. And so I'm just going to tell you a bit more about my story about learning about the Bible. So when I was, uh, so again, I'm still 1920. I'm at university and I joined an alpha course. You know, we, I think we ran one here, you know, an alpha course. Yeah. So I was a believer, but I kind of joined it because I wanted to learn more. And I'd heard these things like, okay, the Bible's, uh, it's been changed over time. It's not really historically accurate. And I thought, I'm sure these things can't be true because I know it's God's word because it spoke to me because I had that experience as a young believer. So I was, I was, there was um, a table that I saw in this alpha booklet that really, really helped me. And it's been in my mind ever since. Uh, so 16, 17 years, I've always 
remembered this table. And in this table, I'm going to show you a graphical version of it in a bit, but it compares the New Testament to other writings of antiquity, so other writings of the same time, other historical documents. And it shows you, and you might have seen this kind of facts for yourself, and it shows you how many original copies we have of the original manuscripts compared to other writings, other historical documents at the time. And it can be graphed like this. And sorry, the, the, it's not coming out, the text's very good, but I'll just tell you, see that big yellow blob? That's telling you that we have 24,000 um, copies of the original manuscripts of the New Testament. And the earliest ones range from 30 to 70 years, or 40 to 70 years from the original date they were writing it. And so you see all the other yellow blobs around here. I'm just going to get up and point to some of them. Um, oh, there's a laser on here. That's really cool. So this one's the biggest, and this is the Homer Iliad. Um, this one says Caesar, and this is Caesar's Gallic Wars. And so this has got 24,000, and this has just got, I can't even read it myself. I think it's about 10. <laughs> but you can see the relative ratio by the size of the yellow dot. And the other thing is the earliest copies that, that we have are written 1,000 years after the original manuscript was written, written. So, look, you don't have to follow all what I'm saying. The point I'm trying to make is that the historical accuracy and, uh, of the New Testament far blows out of the water anything um, of the same time. And so that's, that was a total incorrect thing that we occasionally hear. Oh, the Bible's been changed over time. Because of the process of textual criticism, I'm not going to talk about that now, but if you want to look that up, it's such an interesting thing. Because of the process of textual criticism and the number of original copies of the first manuscripts that we have, we can be very confident what we're holding. What, you, know, you might have an ESV, ASV, New King James. What you're holding is so close. It's like 99.8, 99.9% um, close to the original. Uh, we really have a gift in this. I think that this is even miraculous. When I started learning about this, it's miraculous for this many copies to survive. And then you can look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, again, you can Google that and find out the miracle in that. We found them in the 1950s. Um, okay, so I, I thought that was amazing, but if you're going to, um, if you want to encourage a non-believer that the Bible is really God's word, I think the place that you're going to do that or what you're going to turn to is not necessarily the historical accuracy, but I think the fundamental thing is the predictive power of the Bible. And really that is what proves it's um, the author, authenticity. It proves that the author is God because um, in the Bible, and so there's a, a there's a lot of prophecies in the Bible, right? And they can be considered predictions. And so some scholars have calculated that there's about 735 predictions in the Bible, and 596 have already been fulfilled. And some of them are so um, so precise, like Jesus would come into, uh, come into Jerusalem on a donkey. Daniel even predicted uh, Jesus' death, you know, 483 years earlier. And so there's, there's these really defined prophecies, and the 735 predictions, 596 have been fulfilled. Um, so that's about 80%. But that's not an 80% accuracy, because actually the other 20% are about Jesus' second coming. They're about him coming back again. Now, we can be sure that these ones are going to be fulfilled, because the ones, the 596 have already been fulfilled. Um, but if you try and compare this to any other source of prediction, say you go to a psychic or something like this, studies have been done and they show that basically the best accuracy you can get from a psychic or from the new age is 5%. 5%. 
So really, when we look at the Bible, we know that it's from God because of the predictions. There was even a mathematician um, a few decades ago, and he calculated, he took the predictions about Jesus. There's about 300 of those prophecies are directly about Jesus. He took just eight of them, and he looked at them, and he gave them a probability, a generous probability for all eight, and then he calculated them together, and the number was so big, the probability was so small, and this is the analogy that I heard that made sense to me. Um, if you filled the whole of Texas, so Texas is a really large state in the U.S., if you filled that with dollar coins up to two feet high, you painted one black, the probability of Jesus or someone, anyone, fulfilling eight prophecies is the same as going in the middle of, the, of Texas at random, filled two feet high with gold coins, one painted black, you put your hand down, just take one, and you've got the black one. And that's the probability of eight. So, so really, this is incredible. The predictive power of the Bible is incredible, and it proves its authenticity. It proves that it's the Word of God. It proves that it's not just a natural book. Um, so uh, the reason I'm talking about this is because it's a quite an important issue in our day. Because uh, has anyone heard of historical criticism? It's a process that... Um, it basically reduces the scriptures to only humans speaking their ideas of what they think an unknowable God might be saying. Uh, and it sounds like the Bible should stand up to historical criticism, and it can if the right person is doing it. But what happens is we have very liberal Bible scholars that look at the Bible, and they come at it from a naturalistic point of view. And that's a really a result of the Enlightenment in the 18th century. And basically what happened was people started believing that only the natural was possible, the supernatural wasn't possible. And so suddenly you have this book full of supernatural miracles, and you have people analyzing and studying it that believe only natural things can happen. So what happens as a result of that? They look at the prophecies, and they reason that they must have been, those books must have been written after the date. So when they see Daniel predicting the Greek, and em Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, they say, oh, it must, he must have wrote after that. When he predicts Cyrus, he says who's going to be the ruler, even names him. If miracles are not possible, if prophecy is not possible, you're going to date that book afterwards. And so what happens is the Bible becomes just a um, human history book. It's not a divine history book. It's not really miraculous. And so that's the kind of age we're living in. And even sometimes in mainline denominational Bible schools, we have quite liberal Bible scholars, and they're coming at this from a naturalistic point of view. And if you do that, yes, the Bible does fall apart because you don't, you're not believing that it's actually true. You're not believing that miracles are possible. Um, but we believe in a miraculous God, amen? And we believe the Bible's true. So we come at it at a very different point of view. Hello, you're going to be my mascot. <laughs> um, so... Quite fundamental to this, uh, it's all right if the fiance stay, I don't know. Do you want to go and play? Okay. <laughs> it's all right, he can stay there, that's fine. <laughs> Thanks. So, fundamental to this move of the Enlightenment, which was an intellectual movement in European and American philosophy and culture in the 18th century, was, uh, you might have heard of a philosopher called Immanuel Kant, you heard of him? Yeah, so what, if you haven't heard of him, you've probably heard of this idea. And the, he came up with an idea that basically said, look, you see that chair in front of you. I can see it's green. Um, it's about three foot high. It's about two foot wide. Um, but when I'm seeing that, I can't know for sure what it really is. In my mind, that's what it is. It's green and it's three foot high and two foot wide. But I can't actually know for sure what it really, really is. Um, 
And it seems like there could be some reason to this philosophy, but the problem with it is, is a lot, some German liberal scholars started taking that philosophy and applying it to God. And what they said was, um, God is, God is far off, God is there, and we can have ideas about him, but we can't really know him. And to an extent, that's true. Like we, we at the moment we see dull, dully, we see in a mirror, but then we'll see, we shall see fully face to face. But there's an issue with this, and this is the issue. You might have heard this from people. What happens is they say, okay, I can't really know God, neither can you. Therefore, my it's only about my idea about God. Does anyone recognize that in anyone they've spoken to? It's my idea about God is what matters. So I don't know if you've ever had an evangelistic conversation with someone and they start to say, oh, look, I know you believe God's like this and this, and that's good for you. But my truth about God is this and this and this. My truth is, oh, actually, he's an all-loving God and he never judges sin and he's not going to stand and judge at the end of the age because I don't like how that sounds. And I'm pretty sure the God in my mind is correct. And because we can't really fully know God, then my view is just as good as yours. Have you heard that before? Something similar? No, some of you, yeah. Um, so I, I find this a lot when I talk to people. But the truth is, okay, yeah, he's a bit of a mystery, God. We're going to see him face to face one day. But the Bible tells us who, who he is and what he's like. Tells us his requirements for life, his requirements for justice. It's all in here and it's clear. And so the reason I'm talking about all this historical stuff is because this is what's given us the society we have where people doubt the trustworthiness of the Bible. And I really want us to be a people that says this is the word of God and we live by it and we know it's true. Um, okay, so what does the Bible say about itself? That's the most important thing. <laughs> so I've just put a few scriptures of what the Bible says about itself. In 2 Timothy 3.16 it says all scripture is God-breathed. Um, it also says that prophecy of Scripture is spoken from God. And Jesus said, the Scriptures cannot be broken. Um, so Jesus had this really high view of the Bible that it, it is the truth. Um, so I'll just read out that 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21 says this. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the person's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origins in the human will. But prophets, through humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, sorry, I've quoted that slightly wrong, through humans. It says, but prophets spoke the word of God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the key bit here is, it says, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the own by the prophet's own interpretation of things. So that's really key, is that yes, humans have written this, but it's God-inspired, it's God-breathed. God oversaw every bit of writing of this, and that's really important. Um, so because we, we know the Bible's not just human-written, and it's useful for us now, we can, confident, we can be confident that there are passages in the Bible that are useful for us to pray now. So this comes back to praying the Bible. If this isn't just, because um, you can read, uh, say, say you're reading Samuel and you're reading about King David or you're reading the Psalms and what King David wrote and you think, well, that's just for him. If this is just a human book, it's just for him. And yes, we do have to look at the historical context and look what, what is that scripture actually saying before we pray it, but this can be applicable for us now because why would God give us this book if it wasn't applicable for us now? And so if we reduce the Bible to only a human book, then we don't really have the right to pray some of the scriptures. But the good thing is, it's God's book, and we can pray some of those scriptures. Um, 
So you can pray. Sometimes you can pray directly. You can find a psalm and you can just read it. And you, as you're reading it, it's a prayer. But other, other ways to pray the scriptures are reading the whole passage, understanding what it's saying, and then responding. And you might use one or two phrases within that whole passage, but you're making your own prayer of that scripture. And I want to just give you an example of that now. Um, so this is an example I heard recently. And it, I heard this prayer, and this prayer was sung by a worship leader called Misty Edwards, who prays while she sings a lot. So she's kind of singing, and then she prays, and then she sings some more. And she was, as she was singing, uh, she stopped, and in the middle, she said, Oh, great mountain, who are you? Grace, grace to the mountain. Oh, great mountain of opposition, who are you? Grace. And when I heard that, it was really powerful. I understood what she was saying, is that we have mountains of opposition in our life. And really, the only way to overcome that is the grace of God. There's no strength within myself is going to be able to move that mountain. I've tried it before. Maybe you have too. I've tried it in my own strength. It doesn't shift. But the grace of God, if we speak the grace of God to the mountains in our life, they can shift. I thought, this is so powerful. I recognize that this comes from Scripture. Where does this come from? What did I, I got out my phone and Google. I put it in. And what came out was uh, Zechariah 4 verse 7. And it says this. Who are you? So this is the exact scripture. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. And there was an angel speaking, uh, speaking directly to uh, Zechariah. And so I'll just go quickly. I'll talk about the context of this because when you, so this is just an example of how we can pray the Bible. So I've found the scripture, and I want to pray it, but I need to understand it a little bit more. I don't want to just pray it randomly and not knowing what God's intending over this scripture. I want to know what he intends, and so when I'm praying the scripture, I can be more effective in it. So if I look at the context, and so this is a map of um, the Persian Empire. And so I'll just give you a quick, quick history of when Zechariah was written. So Zechariah and Haggai... They're two minor prophets. They're near the back of your Old Testament. And what happened was the fall of, uh, is this laser work? Yeah. The fall of um, Judah and the temple was destroyed in 586 BC. So that was the Babylonians. They came in and they took out um, the Jewish people and they took them to Babyl Babylon here. And then, in, then the Persian Empire took over. And Cyrus was the ruler, and Cyrus was known as a benevolent leader because he allowed a number of the nations that he conquered. So if you see this, this is the whole, um, yeah, you see that green area? That's all the Persian Empire. So they really conquered a lot of the known world at that time. But Cyrus was known as a benevolent leader, and what he did was he said to the nation states that uh, they had captured, and, took, and he said to them, if they'd been taken back to Babylon previously, like the Jews, he said, go back to your homelands and pray to your gods. And he was a bit selfish in this. Like it wasn't totally altruistic because he said, pray for me. Go and pray to your own gods. So he let the Jews go back to their own lands, to Jerusalem, and build the temple. And so the temple was being rebuilt. But the problem was they faced a lot of problems. So they went back from Babylon with a lot of zeal. And they were quite rich in Babylon because it was near a trade route. And they went back to Jerusalem that was now desolate. The temple had been ruined and it, the ground was hard. It hadn't been tilled. So it was difficult. But they went back with a lot of spiritual zeal. They said, we're going to rebuild the temple. So we've been captive in Babylon, but now we're going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And they encountered a lot of problems. Um, 
when they got there. So the building of the temple got delayed. So although the decree was in 538 BC, they basically had 18 years where nothing got done. They, I, I think they had done the foundation, so they'd done the foundation of the temple, but that was it. They were expecting they would get back, and within a few years, they'd establish a temple. Jerusalem, um, um, Israel would become a nation state again. It would be a sovereign state, but it didn't happen. And they were disappointed, and they were discouraged, and they had some difficulties. And so that's why uh, Zechariah and Haggai prophesied to them. They were prophesying encouragement to them. They were saying, get on with building the temple. Because people had got so discouraged, they stopped building the temple, and they started just getting on with their own lives. And I think this has great application to us because, you know, sometimes we can be on the journey with the Lord. We can be building the house of God. We can be forging ahead and then disappointments and trials come. And sometimes it's easy to think, you know what, I'm just going to get on with my own life because I got bitter. I got hurt. When I really tried to get involved in church life, it was too hard. Um, And I think they're the parallels. And this is exactly what happened here. They had 16, uh, yeah, 16 to 18 years where they did nothing. They did nothing at all um, on the temple. They were all living their own lives. And there's that uh, scripture, you might be familiar in Haggai. He rebukes them for living in their paneled houses because paneled wood was expensive and they're all building their own houses. But they left the house of God in desolation. Um, But what Zechariah was trying to do, he was trying to encourage them and say, look, I know you've had a lot of opposition, but God can move the mountain. And So these were some of the things they faced. The enemies had bribed officials to work against them. They were discouraged because they hadn't had Jewish sovereignty restored. And there was little evidence of the kind of spiritual renewal that the earlier prophets had anticipated. So they were very excited about revival happening, but it did not happen. Um, So there's the scripture. Who are you, great mountain? Now, when I saw the word mountain, I also thought about the other scriptures. Um, in Matthew 21, 21, it talks about mountains as well. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you can not only say, uh, you can not only do what was done to this fig tree, but you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. I love the confidence in there. Jesus has this confidence that we can tell the mountains to move. And the other mountain scripture I thought of was in Isaiah. Um, it says, a voice cries in the wilderness. Uh, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. Who, so this is in Isaiah 40, 3 to 5. But who fulfilled this scripture in the New Testament? John. That's it, yeah. So J- John said the same thing. He says, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. So this is speaking of John. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths from him. So I'm reading these scriptures and I'm building a picture in my mind that God wants the mountains moved from our life so that the way can be clear for Jesus to come back again. So I believe this is an important thing to pray. Um, So we're going to pray now and I'm going to just have a go at praying the scriptures and you guys can pray with me. So we're going to pray this scripture. But first of all, I want to think about do you have any mountains in your own life? Um, and I've just lit, listed down some, <laughs> some mountains. So I just want you to think about one particular mountain in your life. Opposition, bitterness, fear, discouragement, financial pressure, relationship breakdown, sickness, unbelief, cultural influence. Um, so we're going to say to that mountain, you shall become a plain. 
Um, and we're going to ask God for faith to do that. And, and we're going to ask for his grace upon that mountain. So I just want you to think of that mountain in your life. And we're going to pray to pray together. Um, okay, so have you got your mountain? Because, <laughs> look, I, I really believe that God hears our prayer. And that he wants to level the mountains because he wants to come in again. And I believe that the enemy is against us. And he wants to put mountains in our life. But Jesus wants to break them down because he wants his kingdom to come. And he doesn't want resistance to his kingdom. And, he's, and we have a similar ministry to John the Baptist in terms of we are leveling the mountains. We are making a way straight for him because Jesus is coming back again soon. So it's important that these mountains get broken. And I believe God wants to do it. Um, so I w- what I'm going to invite you to do, first of all, is just uh, close your eyes. And I'm going to pray over you first. Um, and then I'm going to ask you to open your eyes and look at the screen. And then you can pray the scripture for yourself. Um, so, if yeah, you can close your eyes. And if you want, open your hands as if you're receiving something. Uh, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to pray for the mountain. Um, and then we'll pray together afterwards. Uh, so, Father, I thank you, God, that you... You are willing and you are wanting a, a straight path for your son to return here. Jesus, we are your vessels before you now. We stand before you, your church. God, you see, we know, you know we have mountains in our life. We have mountains of opposition. Things that are stopping us. Bitterness, fear, temptation. Father, I'm asking... Um, that in your grace, that your grace would abound in this room and just outside and everyone who's, to everyone who's praying right now, that your grace would abound and that those mountains would be removed. So I speak to the mountains in the name of Jesus. I say, be moved, be moved. The Lord is coming. We rebuke you mountains. Come down in the name of Jesus. Be removed. Sickness be removed. Bitterness fall down. Jealousy be removed. Father, we ask that you would come, that you would come. You would have your way in your li- our lives. Amen. Okay, so now I'm going to get you guys to pray it with me. <laughs> and so uh, what we can say is, so we've got Zerubbabel there, but we're praying um, about ourselves. So we're going to say, who are you, great mountain? And think about your mountain. And then just speak to it and say, you shall become a plain. Um, so we can say, who are you, great mountain? You shall become a plain. Um, and this is basically, this bit is saying, in the scriptures, it's saying that Zerubbabel, who was the leader of Jerusalem at the time, the leader of Israel, he, he would bring the top stone. He would finish off the temple. So the temple's a ruin. So it's a lot of faith, this, right? He's prophesying that not only is the temple going to be built up and there'll be walls and sides, the current leader is going to put the stone on the top. So the way I'm going to interpret this is, um, we're going to say, God's will will be done in my life. And that will be general for all of us. So we're going to say, who are you, great mountain? You shall become a plain. God's will will be done in my life. So I'll say it, and then you can repeat it, okay? You ready? Okay. Uh, So think about your mountain. And you're with God. It's not the mountain on its own. God's here. Who are you, great mountain? Who are you? You shall become a plain. 
and God's will will be done in my life. Amen. Amen. Praise God. (laughs) So that was just an example about how to pray the scriptures. So you don't necessarily just have to find a psalm or find a prayer that one of the apostles prayed. You can also read a scripture, find the context, see what God's meaning, and then create a prayer out of it. And then we can use it like that. Um, So I'm going to wrap up now. Um, But I just wanted to finish with, I'll put altar call. You don't have to come up to the front. But I just wanted to finish with um, just an invitation to come before the Lord. And maybe the band could come up. Can you come up? An invitation to come before the Lord and ask him for grace to read his word. Do you know, what I find is this, is that I have seasons in my life when I'm really hungry for the word, and I want to keep reading it and keep reading it and keep reading. Anyone identify with that? And, and so if you've not had that, so I can see some of you putting your hands up. If you've not had that or you've had that in the past, what I want us to come before the Lord and ask him is, God, would you give me um, a season, the rest of this year I'm asking for, would you give me another season where your word will be open to me, where I would have grace to read it? And so I'm going to invite you to respond. Um, if you feel like you want to respond to that, you just stand up um, and open your hands, and the band's going to play. And I'm, g- I'm going to ask for the same thing. Um, is that good? We can do one, one song. So we'll just do that for one song. So if you want to respond to that and you want grace for the Word of God to be open to you, that you would read it and that you would have hunger for it, um, then I just invite you to stand and open your hands. And um, I'll do the same. I'll let you... Um, what were some of them? Let's let's just do m- music. Yeah, we'll just we'll just respond for two minutes with music, and then you guys finish off with a song. Hey, that sounds like a good idea. Um, so just yeah, invite you to stand if you want to re- uh, respond to that. And I, I'll I'll just pray. Uh, Father, we're here, and we're at the end of this three series of engage the Bible. God, we recognize your word is a sharp double-edged sword, and it really improves us, and that when we read it, um, we find life. Father, I thank you that your word is sweeter than honey to our taste. But God, you see um, everyone who's wanting to respond now, everyone who's saying, yes, me. Father, I'm, I'm asking as well for me. God, I ask that you would open up your word to me, that I would have grace to read, grace to understand, grace to digest, grace to eat of your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and you would meet us now. You would fill us with hunger for your word. We confess before you, your word is good, God. It does give us life. You have given it to us as a gift, and we say thank you, Lord Jesus. Father, we ask that um, we could say, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. God, I ask that you give us a hunger for the word you'd open it up to us and that we would hide it within our hearts. So 
So we ask God this next season, uh, from now till the end of the year, rest for a special grace that we would be hungry for the word, that we would read it, and that we would be encouraged by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Thanks for responding. We'll, I'll let the band do a, a song, yeah. Thank you, Scott. Please stand and join us in a song of response. Um, it's just painting a picture of those prayers rising like incense before the throne of God um, as we respond to his word. Rise before you, lifting 